Will you bow your hearts before the living God with me in prayer? Lord, we come to you as your people, and we know that we are on the way to holiness and the way to glory. We are not yet there. This week, though we are yours and you have sanctified us and set us apart, yet we have done things that are contrary to your word. We have said things that you would not approve of. We have felt things that do not match the spirit that you've given in us and put inside of us. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, you would cleanse us of our unrighteousness, and at the same time, you would set us on the path to your holiness and to your glory, knowing that all those who are in Christ will arrive there. We pray that we would yearn to get a little bit closer this week and even through this next time studying your word. We pray you would move us along, give us a clear vision of the glory that you've prepared for us, better understanding of your gospel better love for Christ and for his holiness, that we may strive after him more. Lord, we also pray that we would be good at repenting. We pray we would see the things that in our life that is not pleasing to you, and we would hate them for your sake. And we would do the, the complicated, difficult thing of, on the one hand, not experiencing the guilt of our sin that has been remitted in Christ, but on the other hand, experiencing deeply the conviction of our sin that we realize we've offended you, and that we would turn and walk in newness of life. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to celebrate Thanksgiving this week. We pray that it will be a good time for us to celebrate with our family and friends. We pray especially for two groups of people, those who might feel alone during this time. We pray you would comfort them with the gospel in a very special way, and though They may be alone on earth. They are not alone because of your spirit. We pray that we as a body would come alongside one another, encourage one another during this time. But Lord, we're not perfect. And for areas where we are neglectful, we pray that your spirit would minister especially in those areas. We also pray for those who would be going into a family situation that might be unpleasant for various reasons, that might be uncomfortable and difficult. Lord, we pray that you would especially work in them to give them your peace, that they would not fear, as we'll look at this morning, and that they would trust in you and be able to speak a word that is in season, that is of comfort and of call and conviction. We pray where appropriate they'd be able to share the gospel, but they'd also be able to love their family and friends in a way that points them to Christ. And Lord, as we look at your, your word this morning, we pray you would give us the gift of illumination. Help us to see things. Lord, work in our hearts to convict us, to encourage us, uh, to spur us on to greater godliness. We pray especially that we would be spurred on to be uh, uh, bold in evangelism. We pray we would do a good job communicating your gospel to others and that through the members here that your gospel would be spreading out into office places and schools and classrooms and families. We pray you would use us to bring your gospel to those who don't know it. Help it this time in your word further that end, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I read something this week about how the church needs to relate to the the younger generation, Generation X or Y. Uh, One of the things it said is that the thing that turns the newer generation off more than anything else, is inconsistency, inauthenticity, hypocrisy. And it's, you know, 
it's not just that generation. None of us really like it when we see people say one thing and then act in another way. And that's, or when we see people present a view of life that we just know is not credible. It's, it's not going to work. And it, they're portraying that it does work, and yet we know that what they're saying is not, is not true to life. You can't actually live it. There is a scene in a movie I watched recently about this girl in a boarding school, and her teachers were telling her that she must get an education so that she can be fulfilled and happy and enter the grown-up world. And then at one point she says but, to the teachers, but you have an education, and you're bored. And she was confronting their hypocrisy. They were presenting a message that wasn't actually real to them. And unfortunately, the one place in our society that has perhaps the greatest reputation of hypocrisy is the church. And in some cases, it's well-deserved. In some cases, it's not. In many cases, it is, though, because we see examples of sexual scandals and child abuse. And even the mild phenomenon where people, you know, put on a certain face when they come to church and pretend they're one sort of people when they enter the church doors and then live a different way and act a different way outside. It doesn't fit with their walk. Their talk doesn't fit with their walk. Now, in this passage that uh, Israel read for us, Paul is essentially telling the Christians to, to be real, to live in a way that matches what they're professing. He says, conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, don't be hypocritical. Don't say one thing and then act another way. Don't present a view of life that you can't actually live and you aren't actually striving to live. Be real. Live worthy of the gospel. Now, sometimes when this passage is preached on, and I sometimes listen to sermons on the passage I'm going to preach on during the week, and and sometimes what ends up coming across the pulpit from this passage is, is just kind of like, hey, Christians, keep your nose clean. Stay out of trouble. Don't do anything really bad so that other people think poorly of you. It's maybe sort of like the kid who keeps hearing from his parents, why won't you live up to the family expectation? And the kid knows that no matter how hard he tries, he's never actually going to live up to that. The parents are always going to find something wrong with him. And let's be honest, we're, we're living worthy of God's call in our lives. Are any of us ever going to fully live up to that? So no matter how hard we try, there'll still be areas in our lives where, where, where it's not matching that. And and we could use this passage as sort of an instrument of guilt, you know, as a, as a rod to just whack people over the head with. Come on, live up to the standard, live up to the standard. And then we would experience just guilt and condemnation. And I think it would have the opposite effect. There's something we have to uh, deal with here. Now, this passage does present a high calling, right? It should motivate us to, to live in a way that honors God. And there should be a problem if there's inconsistency in our lives. But before we just use it as a rod to beat people over the head with, we must notice that it tells us to walk worthy of the gospel. The gospel. And the gospel is the message that we're not worthy. So unworthy that the only way to redeem us was for God to send his son to be slaughtered on the cross in our place. That's how unworthy we are. So So what does it mean to live our lives in in a conduct worthy of the gospel, worthy of a message 
that at its core talks about our extreme unworthiness. What does that look like? Well, let me say it's a beautiful way to live, a wonderful way to live, a way to live that's not legalistic, where we're all about keeping rules. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Okay, do these things. Okay, aim at these things. So it's, it's not just about that. Because at the core, we recognize we failed. But neither is it a life given to licentiousness, a life given to selfish desires and sin, because we realize that the gospel does call us to something else. So what do we do? How do we live that way? Well, if we're going to walk in a manner, if we're going to live our lives according to the gospel, we need to know three things. We need to know, one, who we are, two, how we live, and three, what God is doing through it all. So if you're taking notes, that's the outline. One, how, who we are. Two, how we live. And lastly, and it'll be really briefly, what God is doing through it all. First, who we are. Look back at that phrase. And I hope you have your Bibles open. Philippians 1, the, the passage that Isaac read is, is what we're looking at. Israel, sorry. Israel read what we're looking at. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 27. It says, conduct yourself worthy of of the gospel. Now that phrase, conduct yourself, says something very powerful about who we are. But uh, in order to understand that, I need to give you some background. The word conduct yourself there, it's only used one place in the whole New Testament. And literally, it means live as a worthy citizen. If you have your NIV Bibles out, or ESV Bibles out, which are the ones in the pews, you'll notice that there's a little footnote at the bottom of the page that says in Greek it means live as a worthy citizen. And that spoke to the Philippians in a really unique way. You see, they knew all about what it meant to be a citizen because the city of Philippi had this very unique privilege of being Roman citizens. The people in Philippi were Roman citizens. And that's because um, many years earlier, a couple generations earlier, uh, two Roman generals, Octavian and Mark Antony, had been fighting one another. And Philippi was a very strategic city located along the coast that, that they wanted to, both wanted to get control of the city so they could end up expanding there for the whole Roman Empire. Octavian won the battle. But he knew how things kind of go back and forth. And he wanted to guarantee that the people in that city would be loyal to him. So he granted them all Roman citizenship. He gave them the the rights of a Roman citizen. And, And that was really unique. Only that city had that. And then the surrounding cities wouldn't have had that. So they had a very unique privilege. Not a perfect analogy to that, but just imagine, you know, it, it... place maybe in Afghanistan or somewhere in the world that the U.S. has had some control over, and they give one city U.S. citizenship. So the people in that city vote in the U.S. elections and are protected by the U.S. law and get U.S. education or something like that. Now, I'm not sure they would want it, but suppose they did. Well, that would really set them apart from all the other cities around that area. That's kind of what the the Philippians had. They had this special privilege as being Roman citizens, and that influenced their entire life. That gave them a higher standing than everybody else around, and that was how they saw themselves. It was so important to them, and we see that in Scripture. Let me read a passage from the book of Acts when Paul went to the city Philippi. This illustrates how important Roman citizenship was for them. From Acts 16, they, the Philippians, 
the Philippians seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So Paul and Silas did not get a welcome, a warm welcome in Philippi. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are, pay attention to this part, not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitudes rose up against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, sort of amazing that Paul even wanted to go back to the city after that happened to him there. But what I really want you to notice here is how the Roman identity of the people shaped their behavior. Did you notice what they said? Uh, They said, it is not lawful for us being Romans. Now, they're in Philippi. That's a thousand miles from Rome. Do you see, because they've been granted that Roman citizenship, that has influenced them, that has shaped their identity. And they're going to do everything they can to protect that identity, even beating up two strangers who come into the city who really weren't breaking their laws. But they are so zealous to protect that identity that they will not even let anything potentially compromise their Roman citizenship. That's a lesson on how much identity has bearing on our lives. How we see ourselves shapes what we do. And Paul is writing to the people who, at the very least, are tempted to treasure their Roman citizenship and then live in accordance with the Roman citizenship. And Paul is saying to them, you need to live as worthy citizens, not of Rome, but of the gospel. Live as worthy citizens of the gospel. Later, Paul says in this book, but our citizenship is in heaven. And there he's telling them, don't put your confidence in your your citizenship in Rome. Put your confidence in your citizenship in heaven. Put it there. Stake everything on that. The citizenship with Rome might give them certain earthly advantages, but it was nothing to be compared to their citizenship in heaven. So Paul is telling them, don't live according to your citizenship of Rome, because that will lead you in conflict to the gospel. And it will lead you to hurt the messengers of the gospel. Instead, walk worthy of your citizenship in heaven, according to the gospel that will advance the gospel. Now, friends, in order to understand this and be impacted by it, we need to know how the gospel shapes our identity. How the gospel shapes our identity. So let me just briefly walk us through that. Here's the story of the gospel. This is what is the primary identity-shaping thing in our lives, is that God created us for himself. He made us to know him, to be known by him, to enjoy him, to worship him. But sadly, we have not done that. We have sought honor and glory for ourselves. We have left God. We have abandoned God and insulted God. And, And the Bible says we become enemies of God. We stand before God, guilty, condemned, and rightfully deserving his wrath. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might think that sounds strange, and you might object to it on the grounds that I just don't think the world is really that bad. Most of the non-Christians that I know who 
who don't want to receive the gospel are rejected on the grounds that I just can't believe that the universe is filled, that the world is filled with people who are rebels against God. I, I can't believe that the world is really that bad. Well, but friends, if, if that's what you think, or maybe if that's what your friends think, um, it's just not logical that something being so bad is the grounds for it being not true. I mean, think about it. That's not how we interact with the rest of life. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I have really bad news for you. you know, it's cancer. You're going to need to treat it aggressively, and it might not get better. Or if the doctor gives you really bad news, you don't object to it and say, well, that's false on the grounds that it's so bad. No, you accept it and you, you do what you need to do. So friends, not believing the gospel on the grounds that it presents a view of humanity that is so bad is not a logical objection to the gospel. And if we object to it on the, those grounds, we miss the good news of the gospel because then God sent his son While we were enemies with God, he sent his son for us, the Bible says. The punishment for our rebellion fell on Christ. He takes God's wrath for us. So so we deserve wrath and alienation from God, but, but it lands on Christ. And he receives it in our place. And then God accepts us and welcomes us into his family as he would welcome his son. He makes us sons and daughters. And then he changes our identity. He gives us a new heart. He doesn't just say, well, I will accept you and forgive you, but then I'll leave you in that sinful state. No, he changes our state. He gives us a new heart with new desires so that we are willing and able to please him. So friends, do you see how the gospel changes your identity? The gospel makes us citizens of heaven. And then we conduct then we can conduct ourselves worthy of that citizenship after God has changed us and made us new. Too often people mess up on this point because they think that the gospel is just a call to live really good so that God will accept you based upon your goodness. And it's not that at all. It's the message that we can't live good enough for God to accept us. And that is why he accepts us on the grounds of his son's death and resurrection and righteous life. The gospel is that we come to God in our brokenness and in our shame and our failures. And based on the righteous life of Christ... And the sin offering that he paid, he accepts us by faith and gives us a new nature and changes our hearts. And then we can walk worthy of that citizenship. So friends, to conduct yourself worthy of the gospel is first to recognize by his mercy and grace, if you're a Christian, that he has made you into a new kind of person. No, based upon who we are in our former life, we can't walk worthy of the gospel. But if we realize his work in us and base it on that work in us, well, then we can, by faith, do that. Now, what does it mean for us to conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel? What does that actually look like? Well, Paul is going to look at two areas of our lives. He's going to look at, one, our relationships with those inside the church, and two, our relationships with those outside the church. That's what he points to. And right away, that tells us something important. When Paul tells us to to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel, he's not just thinking of a moral checklist, you know, do these behaviors or avoid these behaviors. No, he's pointing to our relationships, our relationships with those inside the church and our relationships with those outside the church. And that's because God is a relational God. He is Trinity. He exists in an eternal relationship. And what it looks like for us to honor him in our lives is going to look like honoring him in our relationships. So first, 
It means to, to walk worthy of, our relation, of the gospel points to our relationships with other people in the church. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's a beautiful picture. I think I could just read that verse over and over again and get something of the sense of it. But let me explain it a little bit. There's two things that believers are doing. They are standing and they are striving. First, they're standing. They're standing firm in one spirit. That means they're standing together in a common purpose. They have one grand intention that is guiding their lives together. And that grand intention is the gospel. They aren't blown over by the winds of change. They don't go from one vision to another vision to another vision because they can't really decide what they're supposed to do. No, they understand that because of the gospel, we are citizens of heaven, and they stand there. They put their hope in the gospel, and they stand there. And they stand there together. Notice that. Standing firm in one spirit means being together in that. It's very hard to stand alone in this. If we try to stand alone, we will be blown over easily. That's why we meet together for public worship. Sure, you could listen to the sermon online. And probably you could find better sermons to listen to online. But we're here together, and that way we encourage one another. We see one another's faith. That's what it means for us to stand together, to meet together. And then not just to meet together, to pray for one another. Not just to pray for one another, but then care for one another. It means that we're committed to being in one another's lives, to help one another stand where they need to stand. And if somebody's strained, we go after them. We help them. We help them stand firm in the gospel. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. That means it's not easy to break something that's tied together with multiple strands. The point there is that you need to stand together with other believers so that you're stronger when you're standing together. I had a meeting with a church member in Panera Bread yesterday, and I got there a little bit early so I could work on the sermon. And as I was working on the sermon, I was... Three uh, men sat beside me, and I tried my best not to just listen to their conversation, but I couldn't help but realize they, were sta- they came there to talk about their marriages and to pray for one another to help them in their marriages. And I thought, yes, that's what it means to stand together. They're, they're helping one another grow in their faith. But not only are we to be standing, we're also to be striving. That's what it says here. Striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word striving there is a military word. Uh, Paul's pulling it from um, the, the military language of his day. It means to be doing battle, doing battle side by side. As soldiers back then and even today, we're fighting together. An army doesn't, it's not one person fighting alone. It's an army fighting together. And that's the picture he has of Christians. They're part of an army. They're standing side by side to fight together. Now, I I thought that our church member Isaac would have good insight in what it means to fight together and the unity that soldiers have. So I too emailed him and, and this is what he said. He said, yes, fighting a common enemy tends to bring you closer together, especially when that enemy is trying to kill all of you. In fact, most soldiers and Marines will tell you that the reason they are fighting 
is for the, next, for the guys next to them on the battlefield. They fight for each other, and that is where they find their motivation to continue to fight and risk their lives. See, soldiers in battle are fighting with one another. And we've got to realize that we too are fighting a battle. And it is every bit as real as the battle that Isaac is fighting. It's not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. We have an enemy out there who wants to kill all of us. And not just kill our physical bodies, he wants to destroy us spiritually. That's why we fight together. Now, I have a feeling that if all of us were somehow taken, given some training, and put on the battlefield, I bet we would do what Isaac talks about. We would fight for one another physically. We cover each other. That's what we would do. And friends, if that's what we would do for each other physically, how much more should we do that for each other spiritually? That we should fight side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel in one another's lives, for the advancement of the gospel. Notice here that we fight with one mind, it says. When soldiers are in the battle field, they can't just do whatever they think of. Well, I'll do this, I'll do this, and, and expect a good outcome. No, of course not. They listen to the general. They listen to the person commanding them, their commanding officer, who has one vision for how the war or the battle will be won. And that's what we do as well. We, we look to our general. To, we look to the mind of Christ. He's the one who directs us. We take our marching orders from him. And as we each seek to serve our master, we then line up side by side, doing different jobs because we have different gifts, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul uses the analogy of a human body to describe what that's like. And he says some people are the hands, some people are the feet, some people are the eye. They, they have different jobs, but they do their jobs with one another for the same common goal. Silence your cell phones, please. Um, Paul uses, so often though, sorry, that's a little distracting for everybody. Um, yeah, the, so the, hum, the body analogy is what we use to understand how, uh, we should, how we should function together for that same goal, doing different parts. But see, too often, the impact that the church has in the community is blunted. It's weakened because we're too focused on fighting each other rather than fighting together and fighting something else, right? We aren't fighting for the sake of the gospel. We're fighting to defend our own turf, defend our own perspective on what we think ministry should be. And we're... We care more about being right in petty disagreements than advancing the gospel. And friends, that's, that's not going to be living as a citizen worthy of the gospel, living as a citizen of heaven for the sake of the gospel. Consider how the gospel changes our identity to help us live according to how we're supposed to. Consider that the gospel calls us together in unity. When we are united to Christ, we are united to one another. Our relationship with Christ necessarily brings us into relationships with one another. And consider that the gospel kills our pride. When we come to Christ, we come with nothing in ourselves. We remove all reason for boasting. 
Instead, we admit that our lives were so bad that the only way to redeem it was for God to send his son to be slaughtered on the cross. And therefore, we don't have grounds to think that we're better than another. Consider that the gospel gives us a call that is higher and greater than any other call, and that is to bring the gospel to others. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And consider that through the gospel, we are given a new nature with new abilities. We can follow Christ. So friends, because of all this, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And that means standing firm with one another, fighting together, striving together for the advancement of the gospel. Now friends, this is why church membership is important. And I don't mean church membership simply as having your name on a list somewhere that means that technically you're part of the church. No, I mean having been actually part of the body, living together striving together, standing firm together. It's interesting, how could we live this way that Paul tells us to apart from the local church? The the way that Paul tells us to live, you just can't do by yourself. It necessarily brings you into contact with other believers. Now that's how we relate to those who are inside the church. How do we relate to those who are outside the church? Look at verse 28. In no way frightened by your opponents. You must notice there that Paul assumes if you are taking a stand for the gospel, that you're going to have opponents. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, those who desire to be godly will be persecuted. That's just how life works. Got the message now. Anyway, Paul's own experience proves that. Remember what happened to Paul when he came to the city Philippi. He was persecuted. He was dragged before the authorities. They stripped him and they beat him. It says they laid many stripes upon him. Paul was well aware of the physical dangers that being a Christian brought you in that city. He knows that these Christians, most of whom were women who were more vulnerable in that society, he knew that they took great risks upon themselves when they met together for worship. But Paul tells them, do not be frightened by your opponents. And there's another kind of enemy as well. We'll see in chapter 3. Paul says that there are those who are out there who are teaching false doctrine. He says, beware of them. So two kinds of enemies that the Philippians face. One, those who would physically hurt them. Two, those who would try to hurt their faith. And he says, don't be afraid of them. And friends, if you're a Christian, you have enemies. Particularly if you're striving for the advancement of the gospel, you're going to be then more aware of those enemies that you have. And Paul's instruction to Christians as to how they relate to those outside the church is, do not fear them. Do not be intimidated by them. Friends, if we think about it, so much disobedience to Christ happens when we live out of fear, isn't it? When we fear, we're not going to work for the advancement of the gospel. We're going to work for our own self-preservation, our own self-protection. Friends, what kind of situations would you be motivated to fear? Let me mention a few. Maybe you know that people at your work are going to laugh at you because you say you're a Christian. Or maybe your boss at work, for whatever reason, doesn't like you and and makes life hard. And every morning when you go to work, you have this anxiety in the pit of your stomach. You fear. Maybe you've gotten on the bad side of a coworker and she's mean and you know her words can be very cutting. Maybe there's a family member who doesn't like you. 
Maybe there's someone in your workplace and you know that you could, you have a relationship with them that you could bring them the gospel, but you are afraid what they'll think of you and what their friends will think of you after you open your mouth for the gospel. Now, there's some circumstances I bet you can think of your own. Where are you tempted to fear? Paul tells us why not to fear here. This is the third point, what God is doing through all this. Look at the next verse. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. The this there refers to the believer's lack of fear in the face of their opponents. This lack of fear does two things. One, it confirms their faith, and it is a sign of destruction for their opponents. That is what God is doing in the midst of this. One, it confirms their faith. It's one thing for us to say that we have faith. It's another thing to look back at how we're actually walking worthy of the gospel and then look at that faith and see that result of our faith. And that's precious to us because it sees evidence that we really do believe the gospel. And God has such a value on us being able to look back and see how we've trusted him through difficult things. that The Bible actually says he has planned those sufferings for us. Look here at the next verse. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God gives us suffering in order to give us a context where we can conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel by not fearing our opponents. And that is a gift that he gives to us. So we can look at that not fearing time and see as proof of our salvation. See God working through us. So friends, how do you view the the difficulties and trials, particularly the opponents in your life? Do you you see them merely as things that are put in your way so that you can't get what you want? See them merely as distractions, obstacles? Or do you see them as God's gift so that through your not fearing them, It can be a sign of your salvation. Now, there are some here who might be thinking, okay, that's great in theory, but I can look back and many times and I can see how I have sinned because I feared. I know that's true for probably all of us. We haven't all walked through those times successfully. So what do we do then? They're not signs of our salvation. They maybe even create more anxiety because we wonder, oh, am I really saved? But friends, here's what you have to do. You have to trust Christ's death covers that sin And then look forward and live to honor him here and trust him and walk not in fear from this point out. And as you take steps in faith, they won't be perfect steps. But as you grow, that will be a sign that God is working in your life as you're believing more and more of the gospel. So the the first thing that happens when we do not fear is that that's a sign of our faith, sign of our salvation. The second thing is that it is a sign of destruction for our opponents. Those who suffer well at the hands of others, trusting in God's goodness, send a powerful message about the reality of God's goodness. And that is a clear sign to those who resist God that they do so at their own peril. And throughout church history, there's many stories of how the gospel is advanced this way. On many occasions, martyrs, young and old, men and women, die, and they say something like, well, you can kill my body, but my soul is safe with Jesus forever. And that sends a powerful message to those who would hurt them. No wonder that many people who were persecuting the church at one point then see their faith and turn and end up being part of the church and being willing to be persecuted. 
One of my favorite stories of, of boldness for the gospel is by a man named John Patton. He wanted to be a missionary to the New Hebrony Islands. And, and that was quite a dangerous mission because the last missionary that set foot on those islands was cooked and eaten within hours of arriving. But before Patton could go, he had to raise support. And this was very difficult because everybody knew of the danger. And the story goes that there was one man who told Patton this. He said, you can't go. You'll be eaten by cannibals. And Patton responded this way. He said to the gentleman, well, you look advanced in age and soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I tell you that on the great resurrection day, my body will shine no less fair than yours, whether it is eaten by worms or cannibals. Now, Patton did go, and he was almost killed on many occasions, but he did not fear. He didn't fear when he spent a night in a tree and heard the uh, people looking for him to kill him. He didn't fear when a man followed him all day, followed him around all day with a loaded musket pointed at his head. He didn't fear. And you know what happened? Eventually, almost the entire island came to faith. And one of the things that helped them come to faith is they saw this man live for something greater than this world and that he didn't fear. You see, when Christians conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, they do not fear what others do to them. And that sends a powerful message of the reality of the gospel. So basically what this passage is doing is it's calling us not to look at life through the lens of what is most comfortable for me, what will advance me in this life. Because that would be being a citizen of the world. But rather it calls us, as citizens of the gospel, as citizens of heaven, to look at life through the lens, what is going to advance the gospel? What is going to advance the gospel in my life? And what is going to advance the gospel around me? And then pursue that. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Paul that challenge us to make the gospel our number one priority. And to live our lives in a way that reflects the truth of your word and what you've called us to. Lord, we thank you for the high calling that you've given us in Christ. To be citizens of heaven. Oh, that is greater than any honor that we could ever be bestowed upon in this life by anything of the world. We pray that we would live a life that corresponds to that. That's worthy of that. That brings honor and glory to you by advancing the gospel in our lives and those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.